can uh, develop a relationship with the technology to switch this on, which is always, uh, which is always quite a, a task. Um, in the, um, I should say, first of all, that sorry that I have not been around as much as usual. Um, my mother is 80, 95 uh, this year, and she, th she thinks this is her final year. This is it. So she's really keen that we spend as much time as possible on Sundays worshipping with her. And my mother is really significant, not just because she birthed me, but because um, she plays a really important role in my own faith journey. When I was 14, I signed for Wolverhampton Wanderers, and my plan was to become a footballer, like most kids of my generation. But I was actually good, I've got to say. You know, I was a peer with Mark Walters, who went on to play for Aston Villa. Tim Flowers, who, you know, the goalkeeper who played for Wolves and for um, uh, 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 a couple of other clubs. There you go. We used to train together. His dad had picked me up from Kenilworth, and we'd go to Wolves. So that was my plan. Everything was sorted out. If you were any good at 14, they signed you, and they bound you to contract at 16, but it wasn't much of a contract. It was really a, a YTS that they were running at that particular point in time, not as, grad, as, as glamorous as now. But my mother thought that this was not what God wanted for her son. In the Pentecostal church tradition in which I was raised, we say that if your mother starts to pray for you, you should get worried. Yeah? And um, my mother not only started to pray, she started to pray and fast. And then she got the whole church to pray and fast. I was kind of worried about what this would mean. And in the same period at which my mother was praying and fasting and getting the whole church to do these spiritual exercises, I had a new math teacher come to my school. His name was Mr. Ralph. And Mr. Ralph, in the first math class that I had him for, uh, said to me, uh, you're the footballer. Yes, he said, have you read any um, uh, American literature? I said, no. He said, have you read any Malcolm X? And I thought, it's a math class. So maybe it's algebra. So I said to him, I said, no, sir, I haven't done any algebra, you know, and he said, well, I'm going to bring you some books tomorrow so that you can start doing some reading around your history and your culture. And he brought me in the next day, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and made me read it. You could do this before the national curriculum, I should say, because you've got this more space, you know, to, to be experimental as teachers. Made me read it. Got me turned on to the world of ideas, the way that religion folded into politics, folded into culture, brought me in. Martin Luther King, Strength to Love. I read the book. This is in math class, you see. You, get, you lose your job in this day and age. You do this kind of thing in school, you know. School teachers say, my goodness. School teacher brought in Malcolm X. And you did it in math class. Yes, back in the 1970s, you could do this. Brought in the work. Got me interested. And over the course of the year, I started to get really interested in learning. I thought, my goodness, if you actually open books, there's some really good stuff inside. And by the end of the year, I lost interest playing football. Now, my dad was a little bit worried about this because I was his pension plan, uh, you know, so he wasn't too happy about what was going on. But it, over the course of that year, I moved from wanting to be a sports person to wanting to become an academic, wanting to serve Jesus in this particular way. So I always say to people, I'm here today because my mother prayed and my God sent Mr. Ralph, who was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. So as you'll see as we go along, these two kind of themes um, um, have turned up in my work throughout my academic career. We're going to talk about Acts chapter 8, and we're going to work through three things, three themes. The crisis, mission, and salvation. Crisis, mission, and salvation. There are very few examples in the biblical text where we see the disciples respond positively to crises. 
Normally when there's a crisis, the disciples are nowhere to be seen. Think back to when Jesus dies and is taken to the tomb. The disciples disappear. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They take off because Jesus' death appears to be the end of the world and there is nothing else that they can do. It is important to note, though, and feminist theologians remind us of this fact, that it is the women who remain faithful. It was the women who turned up at the tomb. It's only that the men turn up afterwards. Remember, it's the women who go and say, Christ is risen, and then the men kind of turn up on the scene, you see, and say, yes, we'll take over now. We'll take charge. But we need to remember it was the women who were there who were faithful. There's a crisis. But on this occasion, they respond in a completely different way to the crisis. And by so doing, provide us today with models of how we respond, not only to the crises within our individual lives, but the crises that we often find within our communities and the crises that we find within our world. So we're going to work through the model that they provide for us this morning. The crisis, the mission, and the salvation. But I can't just as a teacher, uh, um, uh, focus on just, um, uh, oh, that's the crisis. That's the, that, that, we're going to talk about the death of um, the crisis in, the, in this particular passage, being around the stoning of, of Stephen. It wouldn't be enough for me as a lecturer just to make it easy for you in terms of just going through the story that way. So what I want to do is fold into this story a contemporary example in the modern world of how a church community has addressed crises, moved them to mission, and how it's ended up with salvation. And I'll talk you through that as we go along. When you get, when you teach as much as I used to, you see, the thing is, once you become a professor, you don't have to teach anymore. You see, just turn up, you know, when you want to and, and drop into things. So, but what I used to do was just use lots of images because it kept the kids interested. They didn't have to listen to me. They just looked at the pictures. So please feel free to do the same thing. Look, in this, in this situation, we know that the crisis is the stoning of Stephen. He's, he's murdered. And what's unique there for us, particularly for men, is the fact that he is mourned by the men. It's kind of significant in terms of mental health and well-being because the men get a chance to express their grief. It's countercultural because in first century Palestine, there was a law against public grieving. You have to do it privately. But notice the text tells us that the men were out there grieving and showing emotion. Kind of significant in terms of what's happening there. They do things differently from when Jesus dies and is resurrected. The crisis that they experience on this occasion leads them to respond in a completely different way. And that's what we're going to focus on. How do we respond to crises of faith? I'm going to take you through a couple of models here. We need to recognize, first of all, that these crises, the crisis that they experience, has multiple implications for us today. There are implications which are individual, how these crisis, how this crisis, how we work through it on an individual level, it's also communal in terms of church, but also what's very important here, it's important in terms of society. These crises of faith have implications for the whole world, not just for us. And I say this because there's a really famous Baptist theologian who did his work in North America at the turn of the 20th century called Walter Rochambeau, who invented the concept of the social gospel comes out of the Baptist tradition. And he argued that all of Jesus' teachings, 
all of the New Testament text should be understood not only in terms of their impact on you as an individual, but what they mean for the whole of the society. You see, that's a Baptist tradition. And Walter Rochambeau's work influences the likes of Martin Luther King. King studied Rochambeau's in terms of developing his idea of nonviolent um, action as part of the civil rights movement. So we're going to look at how these crises have multiple implications. That's really, really important to remember as Christian people. Our faith is not just meant to be about the personal. It has social implications as well. We're going to work through that this morning by focusing, whoops, using the case study of a, the apartheid in South Africa. Why are we going to use the apartheid history as a way of thinking through crises mission and salvation well because i thought there were two stevens involved here there's the link you see you see you've got the stoning of stephen the new testament and in south africa in 1978 you have the martyrdom of steve biko now if you're peter gabriel friend fans i know some of you are still rocking with peter gabriel i can see a few people smiling well you know peter gabriel had a song about biko memorializing the death of Steve Biko in 1978. Those of you who like a bit of reggae, Steel Pulse down the road, had a song about Steve Biko as well. Those of you into Sting, even Sting sang about Biko. You know, so you know, you know in the right track if uh, Sting singing about Biko. Steve Biko was a member of the student wing of the anti-apartheid movement, is killed by the regime in 1978. If you like your films, you'll know that my lookalike, Denzel Washington, plays Steve Biko in the film of Steve Biko's life. I'd be so lucky. Uh, plays uh, in, in the film of Steve Biko's life. So we're going to think about how the crisis in the first century around the martyrdom of Stephen has a dynamic equivalent in terms of how the church in South Africa responds to the martyrdom of Steve Biko. So let's work through these models then. There are two models of good practice. And the first one concerns Simon the Sorcerer, and the second one concerns the Ethiopian eunuch. So let's work through Simon the Sorcerer. And what I want to do is, uh, 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 as well, to make this less didactic, because I always think that when Jesus preached, we often miss in the text where there is dialogue and conversation. So I'm going to work through these two models, and if it's okay with everybody at the end, allow some space for any questions. Okay? That's, that's very classroomy, isn't it? But you know, it's the day job. You can't take it out of the kid, can you? you know? So we're going to have the, an opportunity to reflect on this collectively as well. So let's deal with Simon the Sorcerer. Well, look, there's several significant things about this passage. The crisis has taken place. Stephen has been, has been murdered. The disciples mourn. They're scattered because of Saul. Saul goes around from house to house seeking out the people who are following Christ. And some of them stay put. Some of them are dispersed, where we get the word diaspora. And they go to Samaria. And in traditional analyses and commentaries on this passage, they focus on the supernatural stuff. The fact that the disciples go to Samaria, they preach, there are miracles, there's a sorcerer there who kind of has a form of the gospel that, people are, that, that, that imitates some of what Christ is doing. The disciples then confront Simon, and Simon tries to buy their faith from them. He offers them money. They can help him do the kind of stuff that they're doing. And in the end, they condemn him. And before we know it, they've left town, but they've saved people. And we tend to focus on the occurrences that take place. And as a consequence of that, we often miss 
what the narrator is trying to tell us about the significance of Samaria. There's a crisis and they go to Samaria. Samaria is significant for two primary reasons. One, because it was part of the northern kingdom and the Jews despised the Samarians because the Assyrians mixed with them. So they were considered hybrid, mixed people. They called them half-breeds. And their faith, as a consequence, was, was transformed. They only believed in parts of the Torah. So the Jews had a derogatory term for them. They called them half-dogs because they didn't believe in the whole of the Torah. There's a crisis, and the disciples go to the disputed area. There's something happening here in terms of how we respond to the crisis. Rather than going into one's shell, not taking any risks, they do exactly the opposite. They go out into the terrain that is disputed and end up in a place that they're not necessarily meant to be. There's a certain kind of mission and expansion of pushing of the boundaries here. So why is Samaria significant then for us on an individual level? A useful way of thinking about Samaria is that it represents mixity. It signifies mixed people. Why does mixity matter? Well, because in the first century, it was seen as problematic. These people were somehow seen as corrupted. There's a real tradition in the Old Testament of maintaining purity, although the scholars would say we've kind of misunderstood how that all works in, re in real life. But the mixity is the focus here. And they go into this place that is mixed, that would technically make them ritually um, impure in order to spread the gospel. Mixity in Christianity is not necessarily seen as being close to God. It's quite the opposite. We think of purity. And hey, within church history, there have been real attempts made to maintain the purity, even ethnic purity, on the grounds of the Christian faith. But the disciples are turning this idea on its head. They're suggesting instead that mixity is close to God rather than being distant from God because it's at the heart of where they need to be post-crisis. The idea of mixity being close to God. It's actually a big theological idea at this particular point in time, so I'll throw it across when through the learning from the classroom experience. There is some uh, 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 former colleague of mine, Brian Boughton, who developed this idea by showing that mixity is at the heart of who Jesus is. He argues in his work that Jesus, the incarnation, symbolizes God doing mixity because Jesus is fully God, fully human, but there's a mixity in some way. I don't want to get into the Nicene Creed here and try and work through the ideas of how the, uh, the, the incarnation works, but what Brian attempts to do is remind us that the whole idea of ethnic mixity and mixity in itself is close to where God is rather than being distant from where God is. It raises kind of some questions, doesn't it, in terms of how we then think about our own lives as individuals, you know, um, uh, there's, a, there's a tendency to somehow, to, to sometimes think that um, mixity is problematic, and here it's represented as something which is actually quite dynamic and valuable. I'm an African-Caribbean, and so I often remind my kids that within our history, 
There is this powerful tradition of mixity, the African heritage that comes from West Africa, the European heritage that comes from Europe. We've all got a bit of mixity within us, and we need to remember that. And the disciples, I think the text is kind of reminding us of that fact here, that it's, it's important for, for doing God's work. But it takes on real significance when we start to think about our own situation here in Alton. How might the disciples doing mission in a mixed context and celebrating mixity, seeing it as central to God's redemptive, how does that resonate with us here? Well, if you live in Alton and Sully Hall, you'll know that it's become a much more diverse area. In fact, I have a little, um, uh, I used to have a little uh, uh, interfaith running club, you see, uh, before COVID hit. And it was me representing Jesus. I had a, 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 a Muslim friend representing Muhammad, peace be upon him. And I uh, had a Jewish friend, obviously, representing Allah, uh, uh, Yahweh. You know, and uh, we used to go out three times a week. And I've got to say, you see, I was really fitter then. And I saw it as a kind of a cryptic test by God, you see, that whoever came first had the best religion. <laughs> so, so I can tell you, I can reassure you, Jesus always won. Uh, but, but post-COVID, I'm not sure, you know, uh, with the pounds I put on, if Jesus would win, um, uh, uh, if we were to go out again. But the Alton has become incredibly diverse. With the mosque opening and running with a member of the mosque, he has told me about how the cent- having the mosque central in the, uh, the, in the locality has meant that people of Muslim faith and are keen to move into the area. He's just telling me about, it was great talking to him because he's doing all the gossip in the mosque as well. He doesn't like to talk, you know, talking everything's going on. And my kids who go to local schools will tell you that post-China taking over Hong Kong and the 300,000 visas being issued to people from Hong Kong Chinese has also had a huge impact in demographic change in Birmingham, primarily because of HS2, also because of the uh, background this region has in the industry of engineering. It's led to huge demographic change. Alton has become mixed. And therefore, we're kind of faced with the same kind of question, aren't we, in terms of uh, where, where do we, how do we deal with the uh, mixity that we now face and see around us as Christian people? And it represents a challenge. And I think here, in the text, we have a model of good practice. We engage rather than disengage. We're at the center of things rather than at the margins. So there's a crisis, and the first response by the disciples is not to run away from it, but to to engage and to be a part of the change that takes place. Mixity, though, also has implications, not only for how we engage with all the stuff that's happening, but also about how we deal with the people who want to pull us apart. It's also really important in this culture war age in which we live in. When I was uh, younger and prettier and uh, used to make films for Channel 4, you see, when they used to put me in front of the camera, one of the things that we always used to attempt to do with our films was fight the injustice. Wherever the injustice was, we'd make a program. It's changed now. So if I was making films and I was 20 years younger now, we'd go to the Ukraine. Say, right, we're going to stand in solidarity. We're going to find a way in which we can make it. Now at 56, it's, I want to go to Barbados. 
And, uh, you know, it's a bit warmer there, and uh, there's some nice stories there, but there's some beaches as well there. But when we used to make films and had the opportunity to stand with people who were facing injustice, one of the things that we always used to attempt to do was focus on how we could bring people together. How could we challenge the injustice that was out there, but bring people together? One of my, one of my most favorite moments in all of the films that we made was the time that we went to Dagenham in East London to make a film about the British National Party. The British National Party were rampant in East London, but they were telling lies. They were saying to people that the reason why there were African migrants in Dagenham was because the local authority was paying every African family 40,000 pounds. I know, if they were doing that, I'd be down there, you know what I mean? I mean, of course it was nonsense that they were telling the people, but people bought it. So we wanted to make a film that would show that they were being dishonest as a way of bringing people together. And there was one sequence in the film that was really, really incredibly important to get. We had to go into this right-wing pub in order to film to show the connection between the British fascists who were around and the fascists from Eastern Europe. The only place that we could do this to make this point was to go into, the, into this pub. Pub was a no-go area for people like me, you know, let's just put it that way. They didn't expect me to be in there. And... Um, the producer said to me, are you sure you want to do this? Because there's a risk to you. Everybody else might be okay, but there's a, there's a risk to you. But if you can get this sequence, we've got the film and we'll make the point. I said, I'm going to do it. And I did my Coventry best. I'm from Coventry. We're not friend of anybody. What are you talking about? You ever been to Coventry City Centre on a Saturday night? We do take on people. What are you talking about? That was the, the front bit behind. I was, I was terrified. When you get terrified, you phone your mother. My mother said, Mom, I've got to go into this fascist pub. They've got a noose, a gollywog with a noose around the neck at the front of the pub saying, don't come in if you're, you're black and brown people. I said, I'm really, really frightened. But I want to get the sequence because we want to bring people together because we see that mixity is a good thing. It's at the heart of the gospel. My mother said to me, it was only a Pentecostal mother. She said, son, she said, you go in there because God has already sent an angel in there to protect you. Oh, fantastic. But I'm not sure that's going to help me, Mom. Uh, you know, but I thought, I'm, I'm going to believe it. We went into the pub. We shot it. It was very, very tense. We had about uh, half an hour to get the stuff, to speak to people. And, and in the corner of the pub, at the right of the back, there was a, there was a, a man in there who didn't look like he should be on there. He looked slightly tanned, or he was mixed heritage. I wasn't quite sure. He was trying to get my attention. I was quite nervous with everything else going on. And he was waving at me, and I wasn't sure if it was a wave or if it was a fascist salute. So I was really confused. <laughs> What was going on? So I, I sent the, so I decided to, I sent the, the, the runner that we had with us. I said, look, look, I don't want that guy to get upset with me. Just go, go and speak to him, just, just to calm him down. Because She went and spoke to him for about five minutes. She came back, and she said, um, he is of mixed heritage. She said, oh my goodness, what's he doing in the pub? She said, um, he's really pleased that you're here and that you're making the film because he wants to get the fascists out. I thought, oh, fantastic. And she, she, I said, but why is he here as a mixed heritage man in a right-wing pub with right-wing extremists from all around the world and nobody's troubling? She goes, oh, I asked him that. And he said, he's a contract killer. And therefore, nobody in the tr pub uh, troubles him, but he's really glad that you're here. So I caught his hand and said, <laughs> I said to my mother afterwards, I said, mother, I'm really pleased that you prayed. Because God did send an angel, but he was a contract killer. She said, son, remember the Lord works in mysterious ways. We made the film. The film went out, went out on Channel 4. The BMP lost the election. 
we contributed to countering the discourse and pulling people together. You see, in the times of crisis, the people of faith have to engage in mission. And mission sometimes means affirming the things that other people don't see as valuable. According to Brian Belton, mixity is at the heart of God. Second move within this text. What does it mean for us as Nelson? Let's talk about the South African context. What did they do in South Africa? They recognize that after Biko dies, the churches get together and they start to talk about how they can bring everybody together to address apartheid. And they produce one of the most important documents in 20th century Christian history, the Kairos document. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a fantastic explanation of how believing in God commits one to justice and to racial justice in particular. It's, it's written uh, in English and Afrikaans, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a dual translation, but a brilliant piece of work. Because what they do, like the disciples after the death of Stephen, the fall of Christ, is they respond to a diverse situation by bringing people together rather than pulling people apart. Let's press on. Second example that we have is the Ethiopian unit. This is a really interesting story. And I'm really pleased that this came up today because I've just finished supervising a PhD dissertation on the Ethiopian unit. It's fantastic. I had a, a PhD student, his name is Dr. Gifford Ramey, just uh, passed recently. Uh, but I need to let you know that the truth of the situation was this guy was so brilliant, I had to do very little work. It's the perfect PhD student. They come and say, this is what I wanted. to do. Fantastic. Um, uh, and you, fantastic. He, uh, uh, meet you at the next meeting. Write 5,000 words just to demonstrate. Come with 5,000 words, fantastic. So I send him away. So go and write 10,000 words. He'd come back, 10,000 words, brilliant. Don't have to do anything with this student. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. It only became problematic when he started to ask me if his translation of the Greek was correct. <laughs> uh, I used to uh, avoid the Greek lessons when I was an undergraduate. You know, it was uh, Greek one, Greek two, Greek three. I did Greek one and said, that's enough. Uh, so it became a bit, a bit of a struggle. I had to pick up the uh, Greek, the Koine Greek, uh, to make sure that I could keep up with him. But he did this fantastic piece of work. And what we noticed was with this case, what people focus on is who was the Ethiopian eunuch? Some people say, well, look, he was maybe an official. And that's what we need to recognize. He came from the, 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 the royal court, and therefore he was there as an official. And we have to remember in the ancient world, a eunuch did not necessarily mean somebody was castrated. A eunuch was synonymous with somebody who was an official. So just because, because he's called the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't mean that he was somehow guarding the uh, emperor's uh, uh, concubines. It didn't go that way. Just another way in which you talked about a court official. So some scholars focus on that dimension. Other people have focused on the fact that he was a possibly a proselytized Jew. He was a Jew who, uh, an Afri uh, a Nubian who was converted, and therefore that's why he's reading the scriptures. Wants to know about Jesus. Other people, this is what my student did, he focused on the fact that this guy was probably a bona fide Jew. And what we have missed within the text is how the Jewish nation is part of an Afro-Asiatic community and therefore was a highly fluid ethnic group, different to what we've been told in, in um, recent history. And uh, obviously, the student was so brilliant, he, he passed. The only thing that they could say, we got him the two, when you've got a brilliant student, you see, you get the toughest examiners possible to examine their work, because you're never going to pass. He's one of the two toughest examiners, people who were diametrically opposed to his position. And the only thing they could say was, we think he's written too much. 
fantastic. They said, oh, you did write 140,000 words, you know, and that was after a 200,000 word text that we'd narrowed down, you know, this guy was really keen to write, you know, he was a pathological writer. Uh, uh, so, but, but he focused on the fact that he could, but I think, again, this focus takes us away from something else that is happening within the text. Sorry, am I going on? I'm, 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 I'm sorry, sorry, I don't want to go on too long. It's a Pentecostal tradition, you see. We keep going. We often miss the part of the text which tells him to go south. The Spirit tells him to go south. There's the crisis and the mission. In the first case, the kind of countercultural impulse was to do the inclusive stuff. The second example here, the counterculturalism is that the spirit is telling him to go in an opposite direction to where everybody else wants to go. Because remember, Paul comes on the scene, and where does Paul want to go? To Rome, to the north. So there's another kind of countercultural move within this text that says to Christian people, look, 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 when we're talking about responding to crises, we don't necessarily do the stuff that's easy. The stuff that means we copy everybody else. Christ calls us to be countercultural, to move in a different direction. The Spirit encourages him to go south. So the question is, um, uh, not only that, but the Spirit also encourages him to go to the man, the Ethiopian eunuch, and ask him that question, do you understand? And I think what's so profound here, and what we often miss within the text, is that it encourages us to be able to give an account of the faith that we have. It's what they call today, uh, Christian, the Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics, really big amongst under 25s and millennials in, in particular, Christian apologetics. The capacity to explain the faith that you have. There's the crisis, they don't back off, they engage in the mission, they do the stuff that's countercultural. And they're able to give an account of who they have. Uh, when I was an undergraduate student, you could take courses in personal evangelism, which is absolutely fantastic. It's not all the skills necessary. It was Americanized, you know, so it was very flash. They used to give us these badges with three question marks. You'd walk around and people said, what, 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 What's that badge mean? I've got three questions for you about Jesus Christ. Uh, it's the only the Americans would do something like that. You know, it wouldn't work here in Britain, would it? You know, it worked in. The, but, but the whole point was what they were trying to do on this course was give us the skills to explain the faith that we had so we could do this kind of mission. It raises questions. How do, we, how do we equip ourselves as believers today so we can articulate our faith, so we can pull alongside people and explain the hope that we have? What does this then mean for us here in Alton? To be counter-cultural, to, to go south when everybody else is going north. Not following the crowd, but offering something different. It raises questions about what does the church stand for that's different? And how is that difference manifested in the way in which we treat each other, operate around each other, and how we engage with the world outside? That kind of going, what's going south mean for us here in Alton? Not following the crowd. In my day job, going south is all about sustainability. How do we, as a university, model 
sustainability, the circular economy to our students at every level of operation, so that when students come into contact with teachers or to the cafeteria or using university transport, everything is committed to sustainability. Our former vice chancellor was a Christian and, a, and an activist. I should say as well that part of my job is actually funded by Extinction Rebellion. So I'm uh, sorry about the rows. Uh, stuff, but it does give me license to do some really, really creative and political things. And they wanted an academic who would do this kind of work, but it means that we get an opportunity to move in an opposite direction, to challenge the way in which resources are being used within the country. In the South African context, how do they go south? They go south by promoting reconciliation at the end of apartheid. Mandela's released from prison, 1992, 93. I was lucky enough to go down there, work with Nelson Mandela's people, um, uh, ensuring that we could sign people up to vote in the townships. And uh, what was crucial, even from 1992, 1993, going forward, was that they would not be like other people who won their freedom and engage in recrimination, tit for tat, after they had gained power. They would try and develop a system to bring people together, to go south. And the countercultural move in South Africa at the end of apartheid was to set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, established by De Desmond Tutu. And what the commission allowed people to do was people who had been the victims during the apartheid regime to talk about their experiences. And people who had been the victimizers to seek forgiveness and to talk about what they had been involved in really powerful counter-cultural move to what normally takes place when there is regime change. Think, for example, the atrocities taking place in Afghanistan at this particular point in time, and how the South African Christians wanted to develop an alternative model of practice. When there's a crisis of faith, whether that's individual, whether it's corporate, whether it's in terms of the nation, I think this text is attempting to provide us with some models of how we might respond. We don't go into our shell, we go on the offensive. And we see the world in a new way. One where we see mixity as being significant and at the heart of God. And that we listen to the spirit and do the countercultural work of going south rather than seeking to go north. Thank you. I didn't realize I'd spoken for so long. It's an occupational hazard, you see. Everything is circuited in my brain to speak for 50 minutes. And then the students go out for 10 minutes, and then you come back in. Uh, so I prepare for that one. So I did, I did want to give you the opportunity to ask some questions. I wanted to do something slightly different. Oh, look, um, thank you. Sure. Uh, it, it went like a, a flash. Um, um, so uh, don't, no need to apologize. I wonder whether we can... Um, we, so we've got about 15 minutes together uh, until 12 o'clock. Um, I wonder whether we... Why don't we have that conversation? Um, then when the children are back, we'll hear what they've been up to. They have prepared some prayer. Um, and so let's use that as our kind of prepare our family time to pray. And then we'll then Joe, if it's okay, we'll sing the last song and then finish together, if that's all right. Um, but I just think with Robert here sure. uh, and with with such a, a you know kind of rich uh, vein of thought, it would be 
some, some questions. Is, um, who's going to, shall I keep this up just to, and then please don't, don't leave me um, stranded. Um, <laughs> so, so my question, Robert, is, you know, I guess historically I've thought when, when, when disciples go to Samaria, it's like, and I realize now that it was a term for that white savior, and, it was, and of course they weren't white, but, but it's a sense in which they are going to, uh, you know, a place where, where believers worked. Mm. And so they are being sent by God to be in the other place. Yes. Yep. And yet you're saying, uh, as I understood it, something, something slightly different. Could you just uh, yep. um, comment on, on that sort of historical yeah. view versus what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying exactly the same thing, but I'm nuancing it by focusing on the ethnic and his, ethnic, ethnic background and historical relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. So where they're being sent to is a mi- an area which is highly mixed, highly uh, contested in terms of the beliefs. These people are not considered to have the true faith. And therefore, I think it's significant that after the crisis, God sends them into a place where it's disputed territory, and yet they're expected to bring about salvation. And I think that has powerful resonance for multicultural, multi-ethnic contexts like Alton, and then asking us, what is the mission of the church within a multicultural, multi-ethnic, now multi-faith context? Well, it's to be like these disciples, to spread the good news, to find ways in which you can reason with and engage in a dialogue with people who claim to have a set of values or a faith tradition that isn't your own. So I think it speaks into our situation. It tells us we shouldn't retreat from the diversity that we see. We need to be at the heart of it. That's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. I think there are three particular things that are important, and I'll try and relate them to the Ethiopian eunuch. The reason why I didn't want to talk about the ethnicity of the Ethiopian eunuch is because I think that that narrative where we see him representing the gospel going to the end of the earth is not really the full picture, because the chances are he was a, a, a Jew returning to worship and therefore became interested in who Jesus was. So, so you know, that, that, that part of the story is really significant because it suggests that in the first century, the early church was incredibly diverse ethnically. So that, that speaks into our contemporary situation. I mean, if we think about 
the ancient, what we call, we call, the, we call it the ancient Near East because it's east of um, where we are at this particular point in time. They didn't see it that way. This was the center of the world for them. So if we see the biblical text as being incredibly diverse ethnically in terms of nations, that's an important impl implication for how we, we see even Jesus as an Afro-Asiatic person, person of color. So one of the first tasks, I think, for us as Christian people is seeing the richness in terms of the diversity, ethnic diversity within the biblical text and celebrating it. And there's lots of work. You don't want to do any work on that. It's what my PhD students have been doing for the last 20 years. It's looking at how that mixity plays into how we understand people. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is racism is sin. And therefore, those who are committed to Christ resist sin. And I think there's a responsibility then for all people, particularly people who are racialized as white and are Christian, to stand up against racism. We're one of the most powerful witnesses you can have in any diverse community is standing against racism. Really, really powerful witness. Always has been. You know, um, back in the day when I was in school, you know, how my white friends used to get girlfriends. You see, because if you stand up against the racism, you used to get the girls. It doesn't work that way now. The kids tell me it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, draw anymore. So I think that, that's the second part. I think the third thing that feeds into that particular experience is that we have to educate ourselves as Christians to understand how the Christian tradition has both been a movement that resists racism, but has also colluded with. And that's why the film that we've made, which is going to premiere later on this year, addresses that history. How did the church become complicit with racism, and what does it need to do to atone for this past? Don't worry, we're not going after the Baptists. Baptists are a different position. Uh, if you know what the Baptists are doing, Baptists are on the verge of doing some very significant work around this um, this year. It's the Anglicans who were particularly on that. Thank you for that. Um, one last question. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. That's what's trying to gesture towards it. So I think there are three things that distinguish them. The first is the spirit. We know Acts chapter 2, the spirit comes down. They're empowered. They have the dunamis, the power to then go and to transform the world. So I think it's about, it raises questions about our relationship with the Holy Spirit and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I think the second thing that is significant, which we miss within the first story, and which is absent within the second story, is the role of women. So... Feminist theologians will tell us that in the first story, the women were faithful. It was the men who had an issue with not being faithful, who were scattered abroad. So we could, we could argue that the, the women were always faithful. So number one, the spirit is different. Number one, number two, there's a question about the women who were always faithful. And maybe if we were to be on, you know, this was to be written again more in, in a more equitable fashion, we'd see the acts of the women 
what the women were doing in that part of the, the story as well. They're, they're, they're missing from this. I think, I think the third thing that makes it fundamental, enables them to do this is experience. They see what happens when Jesus uh, is, is, um, uh, is crucified. And uh, like um, Peter, they, they disappear. But being filled with the Spirit, learning from that experience, they decide that they won't go on the defensive, they go on the offensive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.